Welcome to Taxpayer Talk, and today's episode of our MPs in Depth series. I sit down with ACT Party List MP Nicole McKee. Nicole McKee was already highly visible as an advocate for firearm owners before joining ACT and being elected to Parliament last year. She now serves as the party's spokesperson for firearms law reform, conservation, justice and veterans. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Tēnā koe, Louis. Thanks for having me. Now, a press gallery journalist recently tweeted that you were seen knitting in Parliament. What were you knitting? A hot water bottle cover for an elderly neighbour that I've been looking after for the last two years. She's starting to feel the cold. She's 81 years old. Uh, We have our ACT Party free speech tour about to start, and I'm trying to utilise as much spare time as I can to get this done for her before I get on the road and can't take the knitting with me. So that's a far cry from what I thought. It's not a voodoo doll of one of your opposition MPs. No, no, uh, you know, far from being called a, a nutter by a minister, as well as apparently I've been called an extremist, I'm not doing anything like that. I'm actually just trying to look after an elderly neighbour. Let's, let's cover that. Uh, as we record this, you'll notice it's echoing and we're in Parliament offices now. Uh, this morning, Stuart Nash apparently called uh, you a nutter on News Talk ZB. Yeah, yeah, for knitting in Parliament. And it was because you were knitting? Well, you know, he's called me a nutter before. He's called all firearm owners gun nuts. And uh, and I guess that was directed at me back then too because I stand up and speak for a minority group. I thought I actually did a quite a good job with that and uh, didn't come across with any extreme views but wanted some fair firearms law action from this government. And what we... Well, what I'm getting is just, you know, a direct attack on me personally mm. rather than the policies that I represent. So I guess that just goes to show the nature and thought process of the ministers in this government. Is it just Stuart Nash or do you get the sense that there's a broader uh, stigma or a willingness to use pejorative insulting terms because you're perceived as perhaps the gun lady? Look, I've been called all sorts of names throughout my life. I've got strong shoulders and I'll get on with it, but uh, making personal attacks on live radio to a large audience might need a little bit of uh, attention by our team, I think. Sure. Now, you're probably known for your well, your interest in hunting, sports shooting and firearms advocacy. Are firearms something that you actually grew up around? I grew up around but wasn't participating in, so... Uh, I was born down here in Wellington and I moved up to Rotorua when I was 14. And at that stage, I was living with my mum and my stepdad, who was a chef, and there were hunters everywhere. So, of course, we uh, got the reward of the fruits of the hunt, so to speak. So uh, while we had firearms around us, I never actually used them until I was in my 20s. Is it a different story with your kids now? Yes, they've been brought up on a range. Uh, In fact... I stopped playing netball because I was continuously pregnant. I had three children under the age of three and I couldn't go bounce around on the netball court, so I started target shooting. was really, really good at it. So the children were brought up on a range with uh, firearms safety initiatives around them since they were born. So they were around firearms before they'd even left the womb. That's right. They were kicking me while I was trying to lie on the mound shooting. Mm. And you, you eventually made a business of your interest in firearms. Can you tell us about that, how you transitioned into becoming a, a small business owner? Sure. So I was previously the Firearms and Hunter Safety Program Manager for New Zealand Mountain Safety Council. And I looked after 480 
six volunteer firearms instructors all over New Zealand, making sure that they were educated, uh, had enough tools that they needed to teach new licensed applicants firearm safety rules and etiquette. Uh, as part of their need to get a license, they had to pass a test, and so we would make sure that they had all of that information. Mm-hmm. In 2015, Mountain Safety Council uh, restructured the program and got rid of all those volunteers. Now, I didn't agree with what they were doing at that time, so I left as well as the 486 volunteers and then started my own business as a firearms safety specialist. I managed to get a contract with New Zealand Police to then go into rural and isolated communities to deliver the firearms safety program that we were doing with Mountain Safety Council uh, as an independent business. So effectively, I was going on to Marae, mm-hmm. uh, teaching people who had been using firearms without a license nah. for legitimate purposes, like you know, just hunting and gathering, trying to get them educated, give them licensing opportunities, and also get safes and security into the homes. But further to that, we made sure that we invited uh, not just the hunters, which were predominantly men, but their wives and their children. So everybody got the education. Uh, That was quite beneficial. It worked really well. We subsequently had people coming back to courses that we did. Uh, One example here is of a man who came back and said he has his firearms license, but after his daughter had gone through one of our courses, she went home and said, I'm not coming hunting with you until you go and do one of these courses because you'll be unsafe. Wow. Is it fair to say then that um, to a certain extent you were providing a almost a self-regulatory role within the system, um, uh, providing training that at times wasn't even mandated by law? No, all of it was mandated, but what I did was extra stuff. So instead of turning up to the mandated two-hour lesson, I turned that two-hour lesson into some t- sometimes a two-day lesson. So I made it very hands-on, uh, got people to participate. So instead of talking at people for two hours, I included those participants. And I also took police with me because mm-hmm. we never actually issued firearm licences. We just did a part of the requirement. And police would come onto Marae into that supportive role, would answer questions of people who were not sure whether or not they would be eligible for a licence. That was never for me to determine. That was for the police too. So they came mm-hmm. with me. At what point did your interest in firearms and your commercial activity in the area become political or become affected by politics? I first joined the Council of Licensed Firearm Owners uh, in, a, in a volunteer helping role back in about 2006. Uh, I wasn't political at that stage. When I became the uh, firearms program manager for Mountain Safety Council, I had to leave Colfo because there was a conflict of interest. Uh, upon 2015, when I left there and started my own business, I went back to Colfo to see how I could help. Um, it got political, really. It always has been. Mm-hmm. But it ramped up, I guess, for me personally after March 15, yes. when we had to look at who was going to be the spokesperson on this. And it was Colfo who nominated me to take that role. Mm. And uh, things got pretty heated and political from there on. Was it a bit, was it a bit of a crash course in well politics, media? So oh, on? look, very much so. The only media training I'd had was uh, about two hours with Mountain Safety Council um, back in the day, 2013. I did not get any media training until around August of 2019. I really was just winging it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know 
how to present. Uh, I was just sort of trying to be reasonable and, and calm in the face of the tragedy yes. that we'd experienced as a okay. country. So if we skip ahead to the campaign trail, but by that stage, did you feel as though you were pretty well versed in this type of political communication? I had never really thought about it, uh, whether I was very well versed. I was just passionate about um, making sure that a quarter of a million people were not going to be the target of a government uh, and be blamed for the tragedy that occurred because it was that was not us either. I didn't actually look at it as a as a political campaign as such until we started to see rushed laws going through. Mm -hmm. Now, you were quite clear in your maiden speech that uh, as an elected MP, you feel a sense of duty to the firearms community. Uh, does this come with uh, certain challenges, considering you're also representing a political party? Is there a risk that those responsibilities could ever come into conflict? I think there's always a risk that you could get conflict, uh, whether it be this issue or something else. It's how you work through potential conflicts. And with this team that we have in our caucus, we've worked through everything really constructively and really well. So I feel confident that uh, no matter what happens, we should be able to work through it as a team. Mm. I guess there's a, a different way of looking at the same idea. When you come across a policy issue that's not a firearms issue, uh, how do you approach that issue? Do you apply a particular worldview or is it a matter of checking it off, for example, against ACT Party policies? A bit of both. So I have my own personal opinion, which so far with every topic has aligned with ACT Party values, which is, you know, very helpful. <laughs> uh, but you do have to look at the party values when you're making your decision. And, uh, and you've got to find that alignment between what you can live with personally and what you're going to go out there and publicly say. And so far I've had no issues with, with anything. Long may that last. If two years ago, uh, before you were actively involved in the ACT Party, someone had asked you, what are your, what are your beliefs uh, or values? How would you have answered that? That we'd need to make sure that we are respectful of everybody, uh, especially after March 15. I saw a lot of lack in that, that we have the ability to speak out uh, and get our views across with, without being punished for doing it or name-called for doing it. Uh, and that we also should have some property rights because we were having items confiscated, some of it without any mm -hmm. uh, monetary compensation. So, you know, personal freedoms, uh, personal property rights, uh, freedom of speech, they, they were all things that actually always have been top of my list but became really clear that we needed to fight for these issues um, and they shouldn't be issues, not in New Zealand, yes. not nowadays, but it kind of had to get up there and, and say something because someone needed to. I guess I, I should talk to you about the buyback because this is the, the Taxpayer Talk podcast mm. uh, and this was a, a very expensive policy, uh, essentially confiscation and compensation. I believe I've heard it described as confiscation and compensation. Yes. Um, on average, did you feel as though um, purely in monetary terms, firearms owners were getting a good deal out of that trade? Some of them got a really good deal and some of them didn't. So I think where we had standard firearms that had been purchased, people were getting a, a good compensation rate back for those. But where people had modified certain firearms mm -hmm. uh, to make them more adequate for, for what they needed them for, they were not. 
I'm, I'm an example of that. I had um, a tricked out firearm, which I got paid $700 for, but it was actually worth $2,500 by the time you put yep. everything together, and I was not entitled. Did they to just check it off against a certain list of criteria and decide it? Yeah, that's exactly what they did. And we had two of them. So there was my husband had one and I had one. We had to hand them both in. And, uh, yeah, we effectively lost out on $4,000 just on those two mm. firearms. Mm. And I'm sure the other side of that is that for some people, their firearms do genuinely hold sentimental value. Yes. Uh, and a, when, when a government's just naming a price, they're unable to take that into account? They did have the ability for you to uh, register it as a unique, unique item and go through a process of having it valued. Uh, but it was really hard for the particular one that we worked on because we had gunsmithing done to it to our firearms and we just thought it's not worth it. Uh, I was in the middle of a battle, so I thought I just need to hand these firearms yeah. in, get compensated for it, talk about it later sort of thing, but I need to hand them in. We had a very short time frame to do so. And these firearms, they are literally crushed, aren't they? Yes. For some firearm owners, is this an emotional issue? Yes, especially for the firearms that have sentimental value. Uh, there are some people that had, uh, one guy in particular in the wire wrapper had spent $10,000 on a firearm that he was using to shoot in world championship matches and uh, was absolutely you know, so concerned that he was going to get to the point where he'd have to hand it in and it would be destroyed. My understanding was he had ended up having to hand it in and it got destroyed because he couldn't use it anywhere anyway. So that had won him gold medals yes. around the world and it was it was being taken away through no fault of his own. Mm. So he wasn't able to remove a component and put it in a cabinet? No. no. Away from firearms, what other issues are you assigned to or currently working on in Parliament? So we've got, I'm, I hold the justice portfolio and, and I never realised how big that portfolio is and it encompasses so much. So at the moment, I have been speaking on the killing of police dogs bill, which we, we support. Uh, all of that one is just about increasing the penalties from two years to five years for killing a police it's dog. It's a private member's bill, isn't it? It is. Matt yes. Uh, yes, yes, and uh, we, we are in support of that bill, but we'd like to see it not just for police dogs, but for service dogs as well. So I think one of the really important things that we have with the ACT Party is that if we are going to support a bill or oppose a bill, we will always try and give some positive changes that mm -hmm. we think would help with that. So the service dogs is, is one. Uh, of course, we've got coming up today the carjacking bill, which is the crimes robbery bill. Um, there's the insane offenders, uh, victims' rights okay. for insane offenders bill. So there's quite a few that's going through that's really, really interesting. Uh, under conservation, I haven't been able to get my head around that quite yet, although I am having regular meetings with NZDA who keep me informed on any issues that they have going on. Okay. As the spokesperson, uh, as spokesperson for justice um, and someone who sits, I, do you sit on the justice? Yes, committee? I do. Does that mean you have an opportunity to take a lead or take an initiative in actually formulating party positions on these bills? Yes, yes. So, and I have been doing that. So, I've been writing caucus papers on, uh, you know, things that are coming back from select committee, uh, whether or not I think we should support the changes and whether or not a minority report would be required. If you had to take another member of parliament, uh, someone not from ACT, uh, Hunter, who would it be? 
Eugenie Sage. <laughs> I think we should go tar hunting. Is she is she allowed to hunt? Is that a, is that compliant with her uh, her views? Uh, well, if she wants to hunt, she can hunt under the immediate supervision of a licensed firearm holder, which I'm I'm willing to do with her. I was actually wondering if she'd be willing to shoot a tar from from an I don't know. Court. I've never asked her. She's quite happy to kill them, though. You know, get get out there and well, of course, them, so. of course. Actually, it's a bit of a moot point, isn't it? Um, how how many tar are being culled by? So unfair to say, Eugenie Sage, the state. Uh, uh, there were ten thousand that was the target for being uh, culled last year, and I think what's extremely disappointing about that is that those animals were left to rot up on the mountainside when we have. In the recover, COVID recovery, families that are struggling and could have used that meat. Mm -hmm. Your interest in tar, um, is this for, for many firearm owners seen as a source of recreation or it, it is, as you allude, there really an element of um, gain, <laughs> gaining calories or meat from these animals? Look, they, they are quite big to the New Zealand economy but also to the Himalayan species themselves. So we only we in New Zealand have the most sustainable herd anywhere in the world, and we're going out there and culling 10,000 of them because we apparently have too many. Uh, the, uh, the international hunting of tar, the international tourists that come over here, actually end up putting about $140 million into the West Coast economy because they come, they hunt, and then they travel around the country, get to see New Zealand. And and, that. and now we don't have the tourists here, we've been trying to get um, hunters from New Zealand to go down there and, uh, and enjoy the ability to go out and hunt tar. Is there enough interest, though, from New Zealanders in hunting those tar to effectively maintain that population? Well, I believe that there's quite a large number of hunters, and if they were able to gain access into certain areas, I think they would. They'd go in there and they'd make real efforts at, at doing the cull themselves and harvesting the meat. Mm. I guess this, is, this issue is a perfect crossover of your conservation and your firearms portfolios. Yes, yes, they do go hand in hand and that's why I've got both of them. Uh, of course, there are other issues along with fresh water, uh, which goes into biodiversity, which is part of, of my portfolio and Mark Cameron's portfolios. So we kind of intermingle some of our portfolios with rural uh, conservation, um, hunting and, and biodiversity. Mm -hmm. What's it like working with your fellow MPs in the ACT Party? Because I've taken a look through their list and they're certainly from a variety of different backgrounds. Are you able to all speak the same language or is there sometimes some culture clash? We are we're definitely speaking the same language, but if we're using the same words, no. We are, when you get to speak to Mark Cameron, we've actually discussed that we should have a Mark Cameron dictionary, and you'll understand what I mean when you actually <laughs> speak uh, to to Mark. But we're all on the same wave, you know. We do agree with everything. I, you know, we, every time we come into caucus and we sit down and we discuss the different bills, we're going through them really quickly because we're all in agreement. Uh, if somebody has a question, we ask it, we work through it, and, you know, so far we've had really good good work ethic coming the, out of here. The next episode that I'm recording of this podcast is with Mark Cameron. Uh, so what should I ask him? <laughs> say to him, you've definitely got to say to him, far out what a fiasco it's been. 
and you'll get him laughing okay. straight away. I will, I will. Um, final question. Can you finish this sentence? The role of government is? To look after its people, all of its people. Thank you for joining us, Nicole. The Taxpayer Talk podcast is made possible by the tens of thousands of New Zealanders who join or support the Taxpayers Union at taxpayers.org.nz. Constructive feedback is welcome via podcast at taxpayers.org.nz and don't forget to hit subscribe or even give us a five-star review on your podcast app.